Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss, because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week's guest is Rachel Carroll. Rachel is the founder and CEO of Koru Kids, one of the UK's fastest growing tech companies, which is dedicated to building the world's best childcare service. Rachel was working in healthcare when she experienced firsthand how difficult and expensive it was to arrange childcare, and she decided to found Koru Kids. She has since received numerous awards, including Inspirational Mother of the Year, Best Businesswoman in Tech, and was elected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in recognition of her work. So Rachel, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Cool. So Rachel, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're the founder of, uh, and CEO of Koru Kids, one of the UK's largest and most successful childcare and nanny providers. So I think it would be great if you could perhaps start the discussion by giving listeners a bit of an introduction to you and also to the business. Yeah, great. So uh, first, it's really cool to talk to someone who pronounces the name of my company correctly. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, in England, I usually call it Koru Kids. Um, but as you said, it's Koru Kids because it's a New Zealand word. Um, and it's very unusual that I, a Kiwi, am talking to another Kiwi over here in London. So it's lovely. Um, yeah, so I arrived from New Zealand a um, long time ago, 2002, and uh, had a professional career and then um, had a baby and realized how difficult it was to find really great childcare. And it's an industry that's been really unreformed. You know, the, uh, all these other industries like banking and shopping and all this stuff, it's all been, um, you know, digitally disrupted and childcare really hadn't been. And I was working in healthcare at the time. And um, so I decided to quit my job and found the company which was going to make a much better childcare service. And so that's what Corey Kids does at its heart. We've got one service um, running at the moment, which is um, a part-time nanny service. It's mm -hmm. really hard to find really good part-time nannies usually. So that's why I wanted to do that. And uh, later on this year, we'll be launching full-time nannies um, for babies. And uh, the other thing that we're doing, which I'm super excited about, is we're launching our second ever service, which is called Home Nursery, and it's for, um, for babies and toddlers, and it, um, it will be a bit cheaper than the nanny service. So the aim, the aim all up is to become a full childcare company doing all sorts of different things for parents who need childcare for kids of any age. Okay. So for listeners who are not aware, the, the koru is a spiral shape at the heart of a unfurling silver fern frond um, and it's a core component of Maori art and carving and tattooing and it symbolizes life and growth and strength and peace. So I wondered how you, how these principles and the foundations of the koru play out in the day-to-day -day business operation of koru kids. How do you weave those values into, into your proposition? Yeah, um, for me the, the thing that is the, the koru, just like you said, it symbolizes life. And I love, I love to think about the children unfurling in front of us, like, like ferns, which is the, the typical koru shape in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And it also translate to, translates to loop. And I think about koru kids as a loop of support around the nannies, 
the parents, the children. And that's that's kind of the, the heart of our proposition. You know, having kids is so hard and complicated and finding childcare is so exhausting and complicated. And so what we do is we try to simplify everything. And, you know, the way, the way that customers talk about what we do, they use words like seamless, easy, uh, fast, supportive. And these are not words that people normally use about childcare, you know? Um, so, so that's kind of how it comes through and what we do for customers. And then um, I think our core values um, internally inside our team I think a lot about support. I think a lot about transparency. We're very big on transparency. We're very big on autonomy and we're very big on purpose and just making sure that every morning when our team wakes up, you know, they're doing something to um, to improve the world and that they have the data they need to make good decisions and that they have the the permission to make just make good decisions. And that's that's my view on a recipe for for a good job and a great team. Yeah. You state on the website um, that the Koru ethos is also centered around play and the importance of intrinsic motivation and self-regulation as opposed to coercive control, if you like, when it comes to encouraging positive behaviors in the children. Um, it strikes me that there are also lessons here for business as well in the way leaders and managers encourage and engage and interact with employees. So in terms of how they motivate and empower, and you've got a team of 60 employees and, and, and many other nannies and childcare workers with you. So I wanted to explore whether the essence of the child development ethos that you have is, is also actually applied in the human development, regardless of age and in your business, and whether you think there are lessons for business more generally in that. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think this, it, it's so interesting how you've picked up on those parallels. I think I think about control a lot, actually, and I think about it, it re relating to my team and also relating to my kids. And I, as a leader, I, I think a lot about my own relationship to control and the need that I have to control other people. I'm, a, I'm the personality type. If, if you know Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ, which is a, a controlling, like, managerial personality. I'm the, I'm the type that... You know, you throw me into into a meeting. If it's slightly unstructured, I'm the I'm the one trying to put structure around it. You know, what are we trying to achieve here? What's our agenda? Kind of thing. That's me. And, but what I also know about, you know, I, I also have a total fascination with psychology and child development. And, uh, you know, it's not just me that needs control. Other people do too. And and so I think about it with my own parenting a lot. I think about um, I think about the loss of control that in our children, you know, it used to be when we had more free range parenting in the seventies and eighties, uh, kids, kids were kind of told to, you know, leave the, leave the house in the morning and come back for dinner. And in the, in the, in the middle of those times, their time was their own. They got to make all the decisions, yeah. you know, for good or bad. And there's, there's very definite pros and cons with that, but they, but they had a lot more control. Whereas now children are controlled to a huge extent you know, every every moment just about is scheduled. There isn't that time for play that there used to be. And so uh, what that means is that our young adults are not used to making decisions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, often they're a bit lost that without being told what to do. And, and so for me, a huge part of bringing up great kids and preparing them for 21st century challenges is, is, is seeding some of our own need for control. 
and uh, and giving our children within safe boundaries, obviously, but giving our children as much control as possible over decisions. So an, 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 a simple example of that might be pocket money. Mm-hmm. I'm a massive believer in pocket money, um, you know, because I think we don't have to go back to that 70s thing of like, let your kids roam out on the streets and, you know, whatever happens, happens. We don't need to go that far. We can bring in control within these safe boundaries and and, and give them that. And, you know, with my, my, my daughter, the amount of joy she gets from just from making her own decisions about what she spends her money on, just that little bit of decision is just enormous. And she always spends it on things that I would never have chosen for her. And I think often I think they're terrible ideas, but they turn out to be brilliant because she loves yeah. them. And I, I think the reason she loves them is because she chose them, you know. So, so I think about that for, 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 for sort of parenting and childcare. And, then, and, and we think about how we can bring in elements of control while doing it really safely. Um, and then I think about it the, exactly as you said, I do think about it for my own team as well. We know that that motivate people get motivation from autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That's kind of a famous equation yeah. that you know a good job is is one where you have autonomy, you can make your own decisions, you have mastery, you feel like you're doing a good job at what you're doing, and you can see how what you're doing connects to a wider purpose. Mm-hmm. And autonomy is really important. That's that. That's the control bit, you know. So ha- being able to work wherever you want, whenever you want, you know, structure your day, like just not be micromanaged. Like these th- these things are all all really really important. So how do you strike that balance? Because it um it occurred to me when I was preparing for this. You know, you've got you've got nannies and childcare workers from all over the world um, with lots of different cultural perspectives on the way children should and can and will be raised. And they're so deeply ingrained in many of those cultural perspectives on, on childcare as you expressed in, you know, from New Zealand and I grew up in the seventies in New Zealand and it's quite a different environment to the, to the one I bring my children up in now. And I just wondered, how do you ensure that there's a balance between, I guess, adhering to the core cultural values of Koru kids as an organization, but also ensuring that there is enough, autonomy for those childcare workers and nannies to bring in and make their own decisions and feel empowered based on their own cultural perceptions of what childcare should be? It's such an interesting question. And there's certain things which are non-negotiable. So anything to do with safety is is just non-negotiable. I, I kind of keep coming back to that point because a lot of a lot of the reaction, a lot of the control of kids these days is a reaction to things that went wrong in the 70s and 80s. And we shouldn't pretend that like life was this paradise. It wasn't. Yeah. So, so we kind of, you kind of have to start with the, that base. And there's certain things that we just, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, if your culture is one where like turning up on time is not so important. Um, well, I'm sorry, but you have to, <laughs> like, that's just a non-negotiable. So there's certain things that we just say you have to do. And then beyond that, um, we try to really, really encourage, uh, the, the, the cultural diversity. And we've had some absolutely beautiful examples, but there was one, um, one wonderful story of a nanny who was Muslim and wore hijab, and she was looking after children from a Jewish family who went to a Jewish school. And so she would turn up every day at the Jewish at, at the Jewish school, you know, at the gate in the hijab, and she she stood out, right, like mm-hmm. like doing this. 
and um, and it sparked conversations and she found that she found it a very enriching cultural experience on both sides and so you know she learned a lot about the Jewish religious traditions that she was celebrating with the family and and supporting and they invited her to share some of her Muslim traditions and Muslim celebrations and it ended up this just beautiful enriching relationship yes. so I think there's a lot of um, you know, we, we encourage people to bring bring their full selves and bring all their dimensions. We've got plenty of, you know, young vegan nannies who are um, introducing like new ingredients to these meat eating families. There's mm-hmm. lots of examples of that. So I think, with you know, you, you set, you, set you, you have a certain standards that everyone needs to meet. And then beyond that, go nuts, like bring your whole self. You're in an industry, um, I mean, every leader in every industry has challenges and responsibilities and they have the weight of leadership on them you're in an industry where parents are entrusting your teams and your employees with the most precious thing they have in their lives their children and I guess as the business grows so does the potential for for issues and challenges so I wondered how how you manage that in your own mind as a leader you know what training what mentoring what personal and professional management techniques do you employ yourself to keep yourself grounded and focused and being able to to lead an organization of this nature? Yeah, this, this is such a cool question too. I've been thinking about this probably since I was, I would say 19 years old, mm-hmm. um, because it's actually been a feature of a bunch of different workplaces that I worked in. So yeah. before I did this, I used to work in healthcare and um, my first ever job was, um, this is going to sound very random, but my first ever job was at an aluminium smelter, um, <laughs> a, a really big one in my hometown of Invercargill. And the reason I mention that is um, it was one of the most safety obsessed cultures I've ever worked in. And they had this concept, which I've, I've taken, you know, which I first learned when I was 19 and I've kind of taken with me, which was the concept of an incident and an accident. So an accident is when something happens and it goes wrong. Something goes wrong. An incident is when something could have gone wrong, but it didn't. So basically you got lucky, but an incident could have easily turned into an accident. And they would have, you know, a board up on the, on the wall that said number of days since last accident, number of days since last incident. And then they would do these kind of um, retros and investigations into things that were incidents as well as accidents. And so then, you know, I sort of noticed that, observed that. Then I went to uh, worked in healthcare, and similarly to childcare, you know, in healthcare, incidents and accidents are a matter of life and death. Yeah. You know, and there are certain things which are um, they're called never events. And this is where I learned the concept of a never event. A never event is something that should never happen. So, you know, chopping off the wrong arm or whatever. Um, that actually does happen sometimes in, in healthcare, but it obviously should never happen. Where, and that's as opposed to things which are known, um, you know, as, uh, let's say there's a drug which has a one in a million side effect and you prescribe it to a million people. Well, that is actually not a never event because that is an expected result, whereas chopping off the wrong limb is a never event. Anyway, so I kind of learned these concepts and... Um, and then from engineering, uh, I really, really love the way that software engineers have developed all these practices around retros. And, uh, and, and their software engineering in particular is extremely good at having a no blame, um, like a, the no blame retro. Right. 
and I think that is really, really important. I also saw that in healthcare where the, the, the times where the hospitals that were able to eliminate never events and you know, really, really improve their health, their, their safety track record were the ones that fostered a no, a no blame culture with high, what Google calls psychological safety. Yeah. where you can bring your whole self, you can talk about, you know, like the bad day that you had yesterday, the fight that you had with your spouse, you know, that you had a panic attack unrelated to work on the way to work. You know, if you can talk about those things, that to me is a very important component of a safety culture. So anyway, so all of these things, I think all of these things are really important. And, and I've tried to bring in all of these concepts into, into our team at Cory Kids. So for example, we talk about, and I role model a lot, like talking about emotions, talking about things that are going on for us so that we can bring our whole selves and so that we can foster this, this environment of psychological safety. And that means that makes it a lot easier to have no blame retros to understand like if something, if something did go wrong, we can also, you know, def define, uh, you know, incidents, for example. So if, if something if something almost happened, we treat it just the same as if something did happen. And I have to say, I mean, luckily, well, hopefully not luckily, hopefully it's the result of all this stuff. We actually haven't had, you know, a, a mm -hmm. big, big thing go wrong. But, um, you know, there have been a couple of near misses and we just the only thing you can do about them is take them unbelievably seriously and, you know, go do a full review of every single thing that led to it, look at every single way you could have um, prevented it and then make all the changes you can. That's really all you can do. So that's a, there's a couple of fascinating points on that answer. So the psychological safety and bringing your whole self to work often relies on the the strength of the relationships that you're able to develop at work and the collaborative culture and the, the leadership and the cohesion. And so often that relies on physical proximity to one another, developing those casual conversations with people in the office and everything else and understanding people understanding your whole self, your personal and professional world. There's a huge discussion out there at the moment about how companies can or should and will maintain some sort of cohesive culture in a more hybrid world, but it strikes me that you are delivering this in a completely hybrid world or largely hybrid world with nannies and childcare workers all over the place, not in a central uh, office, if you like. So what advice can you offer brands regarding how they can successfully maintain the essence of their cohesive culture in a more remote world as we move forward? Yeah, we, when we went remote, we actually didn't really do that much differently. Mm -hmm. uh, we already had a couple of people who were working remotely, although it wasn't it sort of wasn't working that well because we had we never really had overcome some practical basics like our meeting rooms were really echoey. So it was hard for someone on Zoom to actually just hear the conversation and we hadn't really done that properly. So I think we we were we were kind of hybrid before, but not really doing it right. I think we'll we'll be better at doing it because we're all so much more practiced now when we go, when we go back. Yeah. But we didn't, we didn't do that much. I mean, we tried like everyone else. We had, you know, Zoom parties and uh, for a while we had a really active um, Slack channel, which was like a sort of 
like quizzes, games, that kind of thing. And then like, I, I think everyone kind of went through this stage of that, that lasted for about probably two months and then it sort of just died. Um, I don't know. I think one thing that we're doing at the moment is we are encouraging teams to meet up um, physically where they can, but something that's happened is a bunch of people have moved away. So, you know, we used to almost all be in London. Um, we had a couple of people who weren't, but almost everyone. Now we've got people in Sheffield and in Wales and kind of all over the place. And that's cool. Like, I actually think that's awesome. I'm really excited about it. And I'm, I'm excited about the idea that we can hire from anywhere in the UK. I think that opens up just so much more talent to us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we're going we're gonna to make that work. But it obviously makes getting together in person just harder. So I think what we'll move to is we'll have a, um, a small office, probably about a third of the size of our old office. And uh, that will allow us to save a bunch of money. And then we'll use some of that money to, um, to invest in proper team get togethers, um, you know, maybe for, for a few days, every, every few months or something yeah. like that. Um, and, and kind of make it, make it deeper and really focus on team building rather than like just going to the office every day. Yeah, that makes sense. Technology is, is core to the effectiveness of the services you provide or technology and the processes that are built around that. And you've got a background in health technology and you've been a consultant for McKinsey as well. So I wanted to understand how you, I guess in your mind, how you frame your business. Do you see yourself as a childcare and nanny business that effectively employs technology and processes to deliver the service or do you see yourself as a kind of technology-led disruptor that is disrupting the industry you've entered and however you frame it why do you see yourself as that business? I think we started off um, as a kind of tech-enabled nanny agency and uh, that's mostly based on my own background because I um, you know I have a commercial and operational background I don't have a tech and product background so for the first year or two, we didn't have that many engineers. We didn't have that much tech tech built. We had a bit. And um, then a, a couple of years in, uh, we, you know, we raised a good amount of money and I made it my absolute top priority to, to, for us to become a product-led company, yeah. which was like, which was quite a big shift because we had loads of really amazing operational and commercial people who, you know, when you, when you have people who are amazing at something, it, it's like a center of gravity for your company. It's quite mm. hard to move the center of gravity. I mean, even if they're really into it, like it, it wasn't like they opposed it, which was, but they're just really good and they have lots of ideas and there's just a natural center of gravity, you know? So I, I very deliberately said, we are going to move the center of gravity of this company. We are going to become a product and tech company. Mm -hmm. And so I spent about a month or so, maybe, maybe more, six weeks or so. I went around, this is pre-COVID, so I, I went around and physically visited the best product people I could find in London, like some really phenomenal, like chief product officers and stuff. And I, I asked them all for advice and I asked them all things like, you know, what blogs should I read? What, like, recommend me two books. And then I went away and I read, read the books and I, and I really tried to give myself like a crash course in what, what, you know, how would I shape this company? Like what, mm -hmm. if I, if I were a proper product person and, uh, and off the back of that, I was then able to bring in a really amazing, very seasoned chief product officer 
hire um, some incredible product managers, product designers, um, engineers, and and so we are now like the you know it's a good story. We are now a product and tech company with also still a lot of really really great ops and commercial people. Yeah. What was the best book you read out of that collection, by the way? Um, probably something by Marty Kagan. I mean, it's the, it's he's a he's a classic. Um, delivering greatness. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. You're an immigrant to the UK, as I am. We're both originally from New Zealand. So I wanted to explore your thoughts on why you think entrepreneurialism is so predominant amongst immigrant communities. Do you, you know, do you think that living away from your home and your friends and your family helps to build a, an inner resilience that sets the foundation needed for entrepreneurialism? Yeah, maybe. I've really thought about this a lot. Like, what is it? What is it that makes you want to start a business? Because it's such a, um, it's such a weird thing to do. Um, I, I don't know. You know, sometimes I think, oh, maybe it's because my mom was off a sheep farm, and you know that has certain um, values of sort of self-reliance and proactivity, um, and you know, my dad, um, he, he sort of, he's, it's just his personality that he sort of always almost believes that rules don't really apply to him. He's sort of always looking for the loophole. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, a lot of what founding a business, you're looking for the loopholes, you know, you're trying to, trying to find the sneaky way to do, do a thing that maybe yeah. no one else has, has tried. So I don't know. I sometimes I think about it about my parents. I think the immigration story I think it's that like weirdos leave their country and you know I was a bit of a weirdo growing up like I was I grew up in a small sheep farming town in Chicago and I was just so so curious about the world and loved talking about ideas and thinking about ideas and uh, you know for me going to going to university was like really kind of blossoming and blooming and then going to university over here in England was a complete dream come true so mm-hmm. you know I was a weirdo in that sense I, I often think the other way you know when my my own ancestors when they and yours probably when they left England or wherever everyone's from for me it's it's Ireland England and Scotland and my ancestors you know six or seven generations ago they they left you know in one case they left the Shetland Islands and they, um, they traveled for months to get to New Zealand and they knew they were never going to go home again. And some of them were like 19 or 20 when they did this and they were never going to see their parents again, ever. Yeah. And the, the modern day equivalent is if Elon Musk starts putting people on Mars and you sign up to get on one of those ships, right? Mm-hmm. And you are never coming home. You are going to die on Mars. Like that's the emotion of it. Yeah. And they didn't even really have phones, you know? and and so, so I, I think like, what kind of person does that? Like, if, <laughs> what kind of person gets on on this this rocket ship to Mars? Like, weird people, right? You know, I, people who are either weird or desperate. And so I, I kind of feel like that's the answer for like, why are pioneers or immigrants as they are? It's like, well, it's not. They're not normal people. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of conversations. Um, clearly with the name being the new PL principles of leadership around leadership and responsibility and how leadership's taught in business. And I wanted to come back to a, 
a point you made about the the pocket money and and empowering children to to make their own decisions in that regard and starting that process there and i and i'm not convinced in in business that we train leaders soon enough we often train leaders to be leaders once they're leaders we don't foster leadership early enough and part of it maybe is because of the definition of what leadership constitutes but leadership starts with responsibility and and in my uneducated view i'm not sure when we're young enough of a line is drawn between responsibility and leadership you know we encourage it but we don't link responsibility with ambition and, and leadership and so on do you think that if more education was built around young people linking the responsibility they need with the leadership they could achieve as a result that we would have more people confident of their leadership abilities as they come into the business rather than just when they work themselves further up the ladder yeah i definitely think leadership can be taught i i, I went on lots of leadership courses from when i was i went on a couple of really good ones when i was a teenager actually um and then most of my formal training was um, when I was at McKinsey, which has a lot of training um, when you join McKinsey. It's actually one of the reasons that I went there was I really wanted that training. So I think it's definitely teachable. I think the bit that we, we should make sure the kids have is the kind of moral center and moral compass. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that doesn't generally get taught in the courses. Um, for me, you know, I, my, my family's quite Christian. I, I grew up going to Christian youth camps and things. So that kind of moral center and purpose was always pretty strong in my childhood. And, uh, you know, other people will get it in other ways. I think I, I wouldn't actually worry about that. Like, I think even if, even if it's not from explicitly a religious place, I, I think the young generations coming through are extremely moral. Like, I think they think very much about like, you know, what, what is good for the world. So I think they've got that in spades. Um, I actually feel pretty good about the, the future of leadership, actually. I think we're, I think there are lots of examples of really strong, like youth leadership. I think in, in many cases, it's the youth that are actually, that are doing the leading now. It's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. How are you defining success today in your business? You know, you talked about re-engineering it at one point and making it more product and tech focus. How are you defining success today and how is it different to when you established the business in terms of where you thought it would go? It's actually not different, um, which is which is cool. Uh, we, it's, we, we have a North Star, which is our metric that um, we think about all the time, talk about every day. And that is the number of hours of childcare that we're delivering. Yeah. And the nice thing about that as a North Star, a good North Star sums up, you know, your, it, it sums up a bunch of different ways of measuring success. It's quite hard sometimes to get one North, one single number to do all of that. But, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's the amount of impact we're delivering because however many hours is how is that, you know, that's how many nannies we're helping to find jobs. That's how many kids we're looking after. That's how many families we're helping. So that's our mission. Um, and then it also aligns totally with our revenue and our kind of financial sustainability, which is great. So that's why it's our North star. And I actually, um, that was really deliberate. So it, what I went against what is normal in our industry what's normal in the nanny industry is you collect an upfront fee and then um and then you kind of never 
really talk to anyone ever again and go off and find some more upfront fees. And I didn't want to do that because to me, that didn't align our interests with the family's interests. And I really wanted, I felt like it was very important to, um, to have a, a revenue model and a business model, which, which where we only succeeded when the nanny and the family both succeeded, right. because that means that we, because we're obsessed with this North, North star of the number of hours, not the number of nannies sold, you know, you could imagine a different company doing that. We don't, we just don't look at that at all. Yeah. Uh, and what that means is that my whole team, we like, we're obsessed with making sure that the matches are successful, you know, and so we'll do everything to, to help that happen. We'll coach nannies through it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with some extra training. You know, if a match is unsuccessful, we'll, you know, do a review, try to figure out what went wrong, make sure it never happens again. Like, and all of those, that's exactly what we should be doing. So that's how we measure success. You mentioned earlier in the piece that you started Koru Kids after you had childcare challenges yourself. And, and this is often how many entrepreneurial ventures begin. However, one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves when we launch a business is whether we're solving a problem or whether we're just solving our problem. You know, the former is sustainable business growth, the latter is a, is a niche. So although it's, you know, obviously childcare is a very established market, it doesn't always mean that the solution we want to provide is the right one for the market. So how did you assess and research in the early stages of your business to ensure you had a sustainable business concept model that you could scale over time? Yeah, I actually didn't really have the exact problem I was solving. Um, So when what happened with me was we found a really wonderful childminder near me and that's who we used for three years, for the first three years. And now we have a full-time nanny. So uh, what I did uh, initially was I talked to a bunch of my friends and just un- just un- tried to understand their problems with childcare. And um, that actually did lead me down the wrong path because um, I, we did try to create this service and it, it, was, it, was, it was a nanny share service. And I still totally believe in this service, but it turned out it was just really complicated and really hard to do. Mm. And at the same time that I was doing that, we were trying to make that work. We, I also just as an, as a small experiment on the side started training up part-time nannies. And what we found was the demand for part-time nannies was so enormous that um, we just, they were like flying off the shelves basically. And we, we were, we were, we were getting just as much revenue from the part-time nannies as we were from the other service but we were spending like 95% of our time on the other service and only like 5%. So this thing was kind of taken off by itself. And when that happens, you know, that's a pretty clear indicator that you should pivot your focus. So that's what we did. We pivoted our focus. I still believe in the, in the original product and we are going to get back to it, but it's just a much more complicated thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so we then, we then grew that we grew the part-time nannies. And it's a cool market. It is a like it's a relatively big market. I mean, it's 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 probably the the whole of the nanny market is about a billion in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's not small, small. But um, the bigger market that we're now going into is probably ten times bigger. Yes. And that's our new service, which is called Home Nursery. And the difference is, this is um, you instead of having a nanny come to your house, you have your kids go to the house of the other person. Yes. And they might be with another another um, kid or two, 
And so that makes the whole thing cheaper. Yeah. So this is our, this is our new service, which is just in the process of launching. We're recruiting um, people to be the um, early educators at the moment, and then we'll launch to parents later on. So how do you stay curious as an entrepreneur? You know, look, looking at this new service that you're launching, how do you continue to stay curious, to be creative, to innovate? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, that's what, that's a bit of a work in progress. Um, how creative am I? How innovative am I? I don't know. I, I would never call myself a creative, yeah. even though I created this, but I didn't really create this. You know, I hired people and I, I like set the structures up. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I do not personally identify as a creator and I, I, I'm not sure I would say, or oh, I guess I'm an innovator. I don't know. You can, you can see how reluctant I am and I'm wrestling with these, these labels. I will say, you know, here's a creative practice I do. Um, Again, I don't know if it's really creative, but anyway, it's from um, it's from this creative writing um, teacher, and I, I quite like doing it. It's called Morning Pages, and um, what you do is you take three pages. First thing you do in the morning before you do anything else, and you you just write um, longhand, free form, like uh, what do you call it? Like flow of ideas. Like mm, yeah. I can't remember what that's called. And uh, yeah, and, and you just you just write three, three, three sides and you don't stop until you've done three sides and then and then you throw them away or you can actually also burn them. The idea is the, the, these are not pages to keep and they're definitely not pages for anyone else to read. It's no. just a way of kind of getting your thoughts up. So the idea is initially your first thoughts are sort of surface level, like there might be about just things that are on your mind. But once you get those things out of your mind by by the means of writing them, then you kind of access a deeper part of yourself, which has, which, which kind of unlocks your creativity. So I find that really helpful. Actually, I, I find it really helpful in, in getting my intentions right for the, for the week. I usually, I don't do it every day, but I find it every so often when I feel like I'm doing things that are kind of superficial, but uh, you know, I'm sort of feeling like I'm slightly unsure whether this is what I really should be working on. And that's when I know that I have to do that practice. So you, you and your team, you're, you're playing a critically important role in fostering and growing leaders of the future, community, business and, and political and so on. And you touched a little bit earlier on about your confidence in terms of the future of leadership with younger people today. I wondered what you felt the key qualities or characteristics of principled leadership in business specifically are, drawing on from your own experience, but also your views, looking at some of those younger leaders yeah, um, that's really cool. Oh, some some things that I think are really important, um, definitely being very clear about your mission, and um, and your purpose and your vision. We have a, a clear written down version of those things. I think um, for me, these these things all go together: transparency, autonomy, and trust, mm -hmm. and mission alignment. Uh, to me, that the 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 the, the team machine doesn't really work if one of those energies is blocked. Yeah. And you've got to have all of them. You've got to trust your team. You've got to make sure you're all aligned on a on a on a clear mission. You've got to give everyone the data that they need in order to make good decisions. And then you've got to allow them to make good decisions. And if you can get all parts of that working really well, 
then I think just magical things happen because people just do things without, um, you, you know, without you knowing, certainly without you telling them. Uh, and it's actually, it's funny because, yeah, in some ways it's a lot of work, but it's, um, it's actually kind of a lazy way of, of being a leader because you just, uh, when I hear about very command and control, detail-oriented leaders, I kind of think, oh my God, that sounds exhausting. Like, <laughs> is it not easier just to trust your people? Yeah. No, I agree. I think if you put the work in up front, then the journey's a lot a lot easier, isn't it? A lot smoother, I think, if people understand that have a clarity of purpose and the clarity of direction and mission. Um, you've recently rebranded um, the business, and as part of the rebranding, I guess you you reevaluate the principles and reconfirm those principles for the future of the business. So I wanted to understand what your you touched on your new product range about to launch as well, but what are the future ambitions for the business? What does this business look like in five years time? Definitely looks a, a lot bigger. Um, we are going to be launching other new services. Um, so, you know, just different service extensions. It's all going to be about childcare. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to solve within childcare. So, you know, I, we don't really have any intention of going into like, tutoring or products or any, anything like that um, so it's there's a lot to there's a lot to play for in childcare. but the the vision is to have a childcare service that has interlocking services so that parents can sign up maybe with their newborn and then can stay with us and you know we've got their um, we've got their family covered you know we know them our system knows them yeah. So this fundamental problem of just the, the exhausting complexity of arranging your childcare, that's one of the major things that we're, um, that we're solving. And then the other thing that, that was something that I'm very, very, very excited about developing further on is you, you, you mentioned really quickly earlier the, um, the Koru ethos, yes. and that's our childcare ethos, which is all about helping 21st century children face 21st century challenges. And so we've done some work um, looking over all the, the best bits, uh, all, all the best um, childcare philosophies of the 20th century, like Montessori and Steiner and Reggio Emilia and a bunch of them, Jesuit tradition. We looked at um, curriculum, looked at Tafariki, which is the New Zealand um, curriculum, really good one, actually, the EYFS um, in the UK. Anyway, and we took all the best bits. And, um, and so we've defined this, um, this Koru ethos and I, we, we, what we now have to do is um, is build that out and uh, and build out the training and um, and and really take that through everything that we're doing. And I'm super excited about that. Awesome, Rachel. We always in the end of the new PNL conversation with guests offering listeners just one or two key tips or points when it comes to entrepreneurship or leadership that they've learned or taken from their own their own entrepreneurial venture. What advice would you like to leave for listeners? I think there's two things that have helped me more than anything else. One of them is um, very frequent and blunt feedback from pretty much every direction. I am the biggest fan of feedback. Yeah. Um, and the second one is it's been incredibly important to me to have a, a, little, a little community, a little group of founders who are um, going on sort of parallel journeys and who under, who deeply understand the ups and downs and how hard this journey is. Yeah. And I've just, I, I get so much emotional and practical support um, from the community of founders. There is 
an incredibly strong, wonderful community of founders in London. So I think um, just find your tribe, you know, maybe it's not founders in London, but I think ha having a tribe and there is a tribe out there for everyone. Uh, and for me, that's been incredibly important. Rachel, thank you so much for your time on the new PL. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what Rachel and her team does, please go to korukids.co.uk. That's K-O-R-U-K-I-D-S.co.uk. And you'll find the links and the notes that accompany this podcast. If you've enjoyed listening today to Rachel's conversation, then please check out principlesandleadership.com for other guest interviews on the new PL or follow us on LinkedIn on our company page, Principles and Leadership, or on Instagram at Principles and Leadership. So I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening today and have a great day.